Max. Danny. We're finally here. It always it always takes me um, so long to prep that I'm like, oh, I get to finally start this thing. It's very relaxing. Uh, if you want to pull me like a little bit closer to you, I know it might be weird, but yeah. Um, so where should we start? Though this this should be an interesting conversation because I interviewed your girlfriend Juliana uh, right before this, mm -hmm. and then you were here, and then the same day that I saw you were on a different podcast, mm -hmm. and for some reason I have no idea why I thought that um, podcasts are just not your thing. Like that was literally my thought, and I don't know why I assumed that, but. It was just a thought I had because there's something about you that is almost like, the, I guess, my perception of that was we met at a meditation retreat and you're really into that world and you also have this very, uh, like, a wholesome kind of vibe, which is, and I don't know why I associated that with that, with you not necessarily wanting to just, like, go on shows and talk <laughs> and things like that, uh, which was, in retrospect, it, it's a thought that doesn't make a lot of sense, but for some reason it connected in my brain. Mm. So I'm glad I discovered that you do the podcast, so we, we get to talk. Because you're you're a fascinating person to actually pick pick his mind. So you started as a drug lord. No, so <laughs> so you so you uh, I met you at the meditation retreat. You can you walk me a little bit? Like I know some of your background because we spoke, mm -hmm. but can you maybe trace like a little bit of your life and mm -hmm. how you got to where you are today and like all your journey through the financial world and then like when you decided to become an artist and that whole thing. So if you can just walk us through like what you were- Definitely. How we ended up here. Definitely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you actually. It's my pleasure, man. It's been uh, pretty pretty enlivening every time we've gotten together and have some heart-to-heart -heart conversation. So I'm really looking forward to this. It's very mutual, by the way. Thank you. So growing up had a pretty- great all-american childhood and played a lot of sports that whole thing and nothing super out of the ordinary growing up but by the time i got to say high school college i don't think i really could put any words to it but there was always kind of something lacking in a way and i think a lot of us have that kind of feeling but maybe it's in the background this <laughs> week <laughs> i'm liking to zizi come here baby come here Oh, you uh, let her in, like from here, like from your legs. Oh, uh, okay. And wants to just come in and just be a part of the thing. Come here, Bobby. And then she'll stop. Come here, Chuchi. Come here, kitten. Playing sports. So there was always kind of something missing, I would say. And I think for a lot of us, it's kind of in the background. And as long as we've got a certain amount of stimulation and things going on in our lives, it might not be something we're very conscious of but there started to come a point where I realized I was looking for something else and one day somebody asked me if I had ever heard of Vipassana meditation because I was out uh, camping with some friends and I would wake up in the morning and I would just kind of sit there I didn't really know what I was doing but I would just kind of sit there I'd sit up in my sleeping bag and I wasn't in a tent so people could kind of see me and I'd just sit there and someone came along and they're like, hey, have you heard of Vipassana meditation? I was like, no. But as soon as I saw that word it, or heard that word and then saw it online, I, it just lit something up inside me. And so about six months after that point, I took my first Vipassana 10-day meditation course and that just totally changed my life. 
And from that point on, I sat a few more courses and I even got to the point where I got to volunteer for about three months in 2020 at the Southern California Center. And that was a real great opportunity to dive deep into my practice, being mostly on my own the entire day. And there also weren't many people coming through the center. So it was 90 days? It was 90 days. It was split up. I think there was one period where it was like two months. And then there was another where it was like a month and then a couple like smaller sections in there. But it was just a really beautiful experience to be around people that I hold in such high regard as just spiritual giants. And again, they're they're just very humble people, but you can feel something around them and it kind of pulls you in and you're like, there's got to be something to this. I want to I want to embody that feeling of peace and joy. And from there, I actually had the awesome opportunity of traveling to Tibet and studying Buddhism and meditation there for a short period. And I believe 2019. And that was just another reminder that like, hey, there's something to this. There's something out there that speaks to the higher mind. And it kind of it just struck me as that thing that I was looking for. And from that point on, I got more and more deep into the Vipassana tradition. And I decided at one point that I might like to be a Buddhist monk someday, ordain as a Buddhist monk. And so there was a period of perhaps two or three years where that was a serious, a serious thought in my mind in terms of doing that and living that life. And the time that I started to really consider that option, it was right when COVID came around. And so all around the world, these monasteries that I would have ordained in, they weren't accepting any people. So it was kind of, it became a time for me to reflect on what I was really trying to do and what I was really trying to get out of life. And I have such... I have such respect for people living that life where their entire focus is on cultivating a beautiful, peaceful, happy, joyous mind. And that doesn't involve interacting very much in the world, but I think it still has a big effect on the world because people that come and see them, they really can be inspired by that. So I was really, really inspired by that so, life. So before you get into like the, 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 the weeds of, you know, of the, spiritual life mm -hmm. i think for me the most fascinating thing about human beings usually is contrast mm. and like I, i'll tell you what my perception of your co contrast is mm -hmm. and then you can correct me like where you know where i'm misperceiving it um I, I think that the thing that stands out the most is that people tend to do things when they don't have a choice mm. but you seem to have uh, and maybe I got it wrong, but there's a way you can correct me. But from what I understand, uh, you uh, essentially got into uh, uh, the financial world and, and investment stuff very early on because your dad was also doing that, right? Mm -hmm. That's your, and you did really well for yourself pretty early on. And then the, I guess the thing that kind of maybe surprises or it's not necessarily like a something that is obvious, which is that you just then decided to just all of a sudden become an artist and all of a sudden to dive into a spiritual world. Cause usually, you know what I mean? Like that world is very addictive, right? People mm -hmm. are like people who start, especially early on, especially if they do the well, like it's, it's 
both a dopamine hit and like the whole world kind of thing. And also it has, you know, there's certain things in the world that when we do them, they have value in different circles mm-hmm. and, and, but not in other circles. And then you just tend to like stick to those circles. But there's something about the financial world that is just like money. I mean, by definition, it has value everywhere. So it's almost like if you're good in with money in to any capacity in any form, it seems to have this like extra addictive component, and that's how people get sucked into like you know the the you know Wall Street and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And no, like you, it's almost like you knew. I don't want to say like it's almost like from a past life or something. There's like you, it's almost like you knew that it's just like it's okay, like it's there for you if if you want to do it because you know how to do it. But you just decided, no, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to actually listen to like this deeper thing. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that transitional moment? Was it at any point a doubt or it was just like a clear cut decision for you where somebody mentioned Vipassana to you and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I don't have a doubt in my mind that I want to paint and I want to do this. So to touch on a few points, the painting and the art was really an outgrowth of Vipassana and meditation. Oh, really? And- it was, it was. So I had seen it since I was a child. Both of my grandmothers have been artists, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really until I started practicing meditation that I just felt like this deep, like sense of like inner peace and confidence, like resonating from that inner peace. And I just all of a sudden really wanted to share that in one way or another. And my thought process essentially was, hey, I don't really plan to be here too much longer. I'd like to spend a life away from pursuing money, pursuing a family, things of that sort. And I'd really like to join the Buddhist, a Buddhist monastery somewhere where I see these people and they're very inspiring to me. And so my thought process was, well, if I'm going to leave some stuff behind, art would be pretty cool to leave behind. And I'll make like little messages on the back inspiring other people in the way that I felt inspired to search happiness through going inwards in the higher in the higher mind and cultivating the mind and so it was really just kind of a spontaneous gesture of wanting to leave something behind and um, I never put too much thought into it but it was just kind of an outgrowth of good feelings that I wanted to leave behind and that's really how the art started. So the art started, but when you decided to do the Vipassana, was it already kind of like, were you still doing, like, were you still working in the, in the, uh, like financial, uh, advisor sector or you just, you, you already kind of, it was like behind you already. So I just to back up a little bit. So I, I hadn't been doing this for a long time, the financial advising. I've been doing that more seriously for the last two, three years. But I've been around it since I was a child, since my father started his own financial advising firm the year I was born, actually. So it's been something I've been around and I've seen I've seen a lot of affluent people. And I've also seen that there's a lot of people that don't have much, but they've kind of found something on the inside Mm. and they seem to have much more than people who by uh, social context have everything. You know, there's, there's people that um, are just really inspiring in that way. And they might not have a mansion and a billion dollars, but they also have no tension on their face. They also carry themselves in a way that kind of strikes you differently. 
And that kind of drew me in much more than trying to acquire. Trying to acquire. Yeah, yeah, play. yeah. yeah. And, th- and that's a that's a that's a very big noticing. Because how old are you now? I'm 24. That's you understand that that's pretty young to understand that kind of stuff. And you understood it like a while ago. This is not like you didn't understand it today. You understood it like what when you were like what 19, 20. Somewhere in there. That's that's very early on to understand that. There's something. Um, well, again, you know, if you just want to throw it to, like, we have certain predispensations, then I guess it's not that much of a mystery. You can always chuck it to, well, it's just you happen to notice this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, right? But I don't know. I find it very fascinating because, like I said, most of the time people do things when their back is against the wall and then they just choose the next two available options, essentially, and that's how they live their lives. They just you know, they they hit wall somewhere and like, okay, I didn't make a left or a right. And that's an easy way, like, mm-hmm. that's the only way they operate. But this seems to be a much higher level of operation where, hey, I'm actually noticing, I'm not even thinking about it in terms of left or right. I'm just thinking, this person looks happy. <laughs> you know, it's like, th- they seem to not need the billion dollars <laughs> and they seem to be living an actual moment to moment moment life is way better than having all the money in the world. Mm-hmm. And but again, you know, this is kind of like a wisdom that when we see it and recognize it, we're like, well, yeah, we know. Like we, you know, we know, we know. But there's a difference between knowing it in your head and like saying it and seeing it like Instagram quotes, <laughs> and 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 knowing it in a way that leads to action. That's a different kind of knowing. Because when you act on a certain proposition, that means you really understand something very deep about it because otherwise you wouldn't move in that direction so i guess i'm just saying that's to me it's just very important like yeah let me say if i think of myself at 19 it's like forget about it like this i i've had my moments you know i haven't been uh the person that you see sitting before you the this whole life so there's definitely been ups and downs but i think one thing that i found very inspiring was you know a lot of people consider oh i'm gonna leave everything behind i'm gonna I'm going to live a life of solitude and seclusion and things of that sort, maybe when they're feeling down, Mm -hmm. but not so much when they're feeling up and high. And I found myself considering the life of living in a monastery and living as a Buddhist monk um, at points when I was high and points when I was low. And I realized, you know, I feel like I have everything most people could ever want. And I still feel like there's some sort of lack and there's just people out there that are so inspiring the way that they carry themselves. Um, I just, I always go back to that and especially Buddhist monks that I've seen. And I, I have so much respect for so many spiritual traditions, but that's just one that I personally resonated with the most. So explain to me, cause even to me and you know, where I meditate and you know, I'm shop around the spiritual supermarket for, for a little bit. So I'm like, I'm aware of, you know, like some things and less aware of others, but it almost, uh, okay. So I guess my question to you is like, you're saying Buddhist monks versus the rest of the kind of like the spiritual traditions. Can you outline for the, for people who are not aware, like what is the main tenet there? Like what is the main difference between Buddhism specifically and the rest of how you view like the, the, the other kind of like spiritual, uh, <laughs> A sp- spiritual uh, shelf. 
that we can okay. chop from. Yeah, this is a pretty momentous task. Well, yeah, <laughs> but like if you if you can thread yeah, something there, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I would say that it really comes down to it comes down to the Buddha's basic concepts that hey, suffering exists. So at a basic level, everything is changing, and because everything is changing you're not going to be able to find a permanent sense of satisfaction and happiness. So he essentially just notices the most obvious. So it, it, like... That's where it starts. And then it leads to the Eightfold Noble Path, which outlines a way basically out of all this changing stuff. And it holds Nirvana, Nibbana, um, Enlightenment as this highest ideal for which people can strive for. And it, that's just your working hypothesis. So you don't know if it exists, Nirvana might not exist. Who knows? But if you take this person, the Buddha, at face value, then that might be a worthy path to walk down. And you start to look at what he's talking about, and it seems to make sense. You're not required to do anything that would kind of take away from a sense of dignity you're not required to do anything that would hurt others in fact you're encouraged to do things that would not hurt others and so it's little things like that and i think one of the big points that buddhism has that separates it from other spiritual traditions is there's not necessarily an idea of god um, there's no master creator that created everything but for myself personally, I kind of hold those highest, like those highest ideals or I ideas of like God or Dhamma, as it's called in Buddhism, as kind of one in the same. So like Dhamma would be likened to the, the laws governing the universe. That's like the closest you can get. And obviously there's a there's a language barrier there because it's an ancient language that isn't really spoken much anymore, but I, I really see like these ultimate laws of the universe that, that govern everything as a common thread thrown, uh, sewn throughout all these major world religions. And I really think when you hear people, you mean in the sense that there's a creator and then there's a, like the gradation under the creator, or do you mean that, like, are you trying to say that the, the thread that you see through the other uh, spiritual traditions and religions is is the is that belief in the divine or it's a difficult one to put too much words on top of but i think at those like highest levels i think it doesn't necessarily do do it justice to think too much about it so basically saying too many, too much about it is really missing the point of it itself is that would like would that be fair I think it would come back to the idea of whether or not you would like to believe there's a creator doesn't have a hindrance on the power of being a good person now. So basically, how how does your life look like? Mm -hmm. That that's it. That's really yeah. what it leads to. So like you can be a good Christian, and you know if you live a great life, mm -hmm. awesome. That works for you. But if you're a Christian and you're you know, uh, like protesting against gays or something like that. That's like all of a sudden you have like a weird, you have like a weird situation where like now you somehow you're hating because of whatever your belief system is. And that kind of, that, that seems to be the thing that you should put more emphasis on. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair? So 
when you said, by the way, before I forget, when you said taking Buddha at face value, <laughs> do, do you mean as a person? Like just to kind of follow the thread of who he was and how he lived his life? Or just according to what he said? No, with that sentence in particular, just the idea that there is a permanent, everlasting happiness known as nirvana. Got it. So, so like according to what yeah. Buddha said, basically. Just him saying, hey, guys, I've found something that you might want to check out. It's really, really good. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I agree with pretty much all of that. And I guess, the and I, and I think that the only place where, and I actually, you know, okay, so it's like I have like <laughs> five thoughts at the same time. So what I wanted to say was that, first of all, I agree with all of that. And that in our previous conversations, at least to me, it seemed like you and I, there's like a portion of this whole thing where we start like diverge, diverging like we, we actually don't necessarily fully agree there but the more I talk to you I realize that it might not be the case it's just that we have a different emphasis mm. so like the the biggest point that I felt like we're maybe seeing it a little bit differently is that I always feel like just sitting you know alone in a cave and getting great at that and just attaining inner peace almost to me feels a little bit like selfish sometimes it's like yeah i mean your life is perfect now but like you know what what has this done for humanity right Mm. and leaving the proposition that maybe there's more than we can see and they actually hold some kind of an anchor for humanity aside for a second maybe that's the case maybe it's not the case i don't know and i'm more and more open to that being the case by the way the more Mm. time goes by but leaving that aside i do feel that I'm seeing more and more that there has to be, in order to attain something great or to be really, really good at anything, even though being good at meditation just sounds like an oxymoron, like it just sounds like it doesn't make any sense because it's not a competition. But some people are just either better predisposed or just because they practice, they are better and we can actually measure that now with functional MRI. Like they're better at being in a state that is Mm -hmm. like an actual state. It's not like a make-believe, right? Uh, they actually change the way their brain operates, mm-hmm. um, which leads to very good benefits, including rejuvenation of of uh, neural connections over the age of fifty four, which has never which has never been seen before. But again, all of that aside, I'm starting to notice more and more that in order to get really good at something, obviously you have to devote all, like your all to it. And I'm starting to see that the ones that are doing this like very extreme thing where they sit for many, many, many days and weeks and months and in one place, they attain a certain understanding that then trickles down to Mm -hmm. their disciples or the people who are influenced by them and, you know, and then inspiring people like you. And then here we are talking about it in a podcast in in the Western world. So it doesn't have that effect, even though that person doesn't have to directly, Mm -hmm. like, talk about or or impart whatever knowledge they had. Uh, But I do want to... Just to keep it interesting, I want to throw like something at you that I, I'm not 100% sure that we agree on, and it'll be interesting to see what you think of that. So we, we talk about a lot of the stuff off camera, so some of it will be a little bit repetitive for us, but it's okay. <laughs> um, the whole technology thing, right? Mm-hmm. Do you Obviously, we can. there's no question that we can agree that because it shortens people's attention span and because Instagram now is basically like a porn site for guys and like, you know... That stuff we can both agree, yeah, that's just across the board, not good. It definitely leads in the direction of catering to a lot of our 
lesser ideals in a way because those unfortunately are the things that'll capture our attention the quickest yeah and so, so we would 100 percent agree definitely that, that it's definitely. not good for us and not good for development of not just a child but of a human being period you know i would say not not inherently but unfortunately it has been in the case of many i think there's probably a good chunk of people out there that have gotten only benefit from it in terms of communication and things like that of connecting beautiful ideas um but i have to agree the vast majority has been um a little bit less than perfect yeah so i so i guess my question is do you think there's any path because it doesn't seem like the technology is going away right so realistically we have to accept mm-hmm. that that's what's happening unless there's some kind of a very unfortunate event and we don't survive but if we are and hopefully we are and technology keeps advancing, do you see any kind of scenario in which all the ideals and the the incremental understanding of the Western world, of the values of everything that the Eastern traditions have to offer, do you see a world in which it sips into our culture, not in the in a commercialized and bottled up kind of way, but in a true influential way where somehow technology actually helps us? to become better at all the stuff that you would think is a great regimen for a better life. Like, like it would actually help us to focus more. It would help us to, you know, turn our brains to a certain level of, I don't know, theta, whatever, you know, it's like, do you see a scenario like that or it you know, doesn't look hopeful? I think it already has. I am able to turn on the little computer in my pocket and listen to some of the people I'm most inspired by in the entire world who have passed away decades ago at any point in the day. And I can set an hour on my phone for a meditation and listen to some like really wise words at the start of it that inspire my meditation. And so I would say that it already has. And it's not to say it's not going to be a difficult future going forward for all of us here on earth as humans. Um, but I think that just, I think the advancement of technology just highlights the importance of taking time for oneself every single day in silence, reflection, contemplation, prayer, whatever you want to call it, and kind of tuning in so that we have more to share. Because if, if our thoughts are scattered, if our focus is scattered, it's, it's like a, it's like a drill, you know, that's not very sharp. You're not going to get very far, but if you kind of sharpen it and it's very laser focused on where you want to go and it's going to get pretty far. That's a very hopeful image. By the way, this is something that I, uh, I think that if more, more people would understand that, for example, when you come back from a 10 day, uh, Vipassana retreat, mm-hmm. the level, the level of sharpness of your mind mm-hmm. and the level of ability to actually focus and unfocused when not necessary is staggering like i whenever i get back from a retreat yes everything has kind of seemed to be moving too fast for me for a little bit and everything but the amount of work i managed to do in three days is like prior it would take me like a week to do just because i was be i would be so scattered Mm -hmm. and i think that if i mean and again obviously some a lot of people already understand that because you have a lot of like kind of you know this whole trend of like big ceos that are doing that because of that but Really, like if people would understand, people sometimes ask me like, "What not it crazy to meditate two hours a day? I'm like, you don't understand. Like the, the, the amount of hours you get in a day from doing that is much more than 24 hours. You literally can 
just like apply your focus in a way that you never imagined was possible. Mm-hmm. So, and I just think that if more people would have this one pro- pro- one first experience with 10 day retreats where they see what it actually does, mm-hmm. I'll never forget mine because I came back and I was just blown away by this, like mm-hmm. how, mu- how much of a real science this is. And I think that is a type of, a, of an understanding that you're right. Like in the end, it's just our choice. Like you have the same phone that I do. And you just find the content that 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 is closer to what your what your heart actually desires, which is those ideas of uh, of the people that inspire you. Mm-hmm. So I guess the only question would be like, how do you engineer something that makes it more appealing to like a larger <laughs> audience? Right? It's like how do you how do you how how do you package it? How do you market it? And I think this is a conversation you and I had a lot back and forth, which is like, how do you apply the techniques of technology? and combine it with what we understand about Buddhism and about what we understand about meditation and make it not just more available like in meditation apps, but more appealing across the board. Like how do you advertise it in a way that actually doesn't doesn't compromise for what the thing really is while at the same time giving the 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 little bit of the shiny object that, that basically pulls people a little bit more in? I think the unfortunate answer is that something has to break. When you so, be- like levels of depression and anxiety. Oh, you mean in a person, like something has to break. Not necessarily just in an individual, but in society. I think people have been gravitating towards mindfulness, meditation, yoga, things like this. Also because levels of anxiety and depression are just off the charts. Levels of things like suicide and self-harm are just off the charts. And nothing else has worked. Like a lot of people have turned to things like medication or self-medication with various substances and they didn't find what they were looking for. And so finally there's these other alternatives from tons of different traditions and spiritual backgrounds that are offering something that might work and all of them point inwards. And I think people are gravitating towards that because it's... I don't want to say a last hope, but it's one of the other alternatives that are still left. And it's something that has worked basically since it was conjured as an idea, mm-hmm. really, which which also attests to its power because it survived many, 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 many generations of scrutiny by people trying it. And mm-hmm. just like in Vipassana, they always say like it, it either works for you, the technique either works for you or it doesn't. Yeah. That's the only marker you have. There's no like... There's no like uh, I was actually explaining this to a friend today that was here, I, I, and he, you know, he he teaches like energy stuff and very interesting guy. But I, as I was explaining it, I realized like the true power of specifically vipassana, which is that there's no concepts involved. At least in a ten day retreat, there isn't. You just show up, and they show you how to do it, and that is just you, and whatever happens is in your skull and in your body, and that's it. And you, you either find something that is has like such a fundamental value that you can see that it changes you as a person to a certain degree, or you don't. There's no other measure. That's the only measure. There's nobody to convince you to do anything. There's no, like, not, not of that. And I think that's really the thing that separates it for me personally. I think the thing that separates it for me personally are the changes I've seen not only in myself, but other people. So uh, two friends of mine, who I think you might know as well, Shane and Carmen, that Shane was the project manager at the Southern California Vipassana. Okay, yeah, yeah. He put a ton of stuff together for the expansion of that meditation center. 
And him and his partner, Carmen, they just came out of a 45-day course the other day. And just those two, for an example, just the level of contentment that they carry around with them is so inspiring. And to see the changes in my friends over the years and in myself over the years, that has been the most inspiring thing, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. No, because you can see there's a certain there's a certain energy to people who are in, at the retreat uh, and outside of it that you can notice that there's something different about how their mind actually operates and how they view the world and how they view other people. There's less, much less of this acting category behavior, mm-hmm. which is like a little, it's almost like a little hiatus before somebody says something. Like that doesn't really exist. Definitely. So, yeah, it's almost like a much more real, mm-hmm. like just in the moment kind of, kind of thing. And Go ahead, sorry. One one of my favorite analogies is like these teachings are kind of like food or like these practices are kind of like food and you've just stepped into a restaurant and you don't know what the food is going to taste like, but you you come in and you read the menu, right? And so that's, and you're like, oh, this this sounds good. The, when I read the menu, there's some food on there that sounds like I like. And that'd be referred to as suttamayapanya, like the kind of wisdom that you can get through like intellectual reading and stuff like that. And then you look around in the restaurant and there's a bunch of people and they're they're smiling faces. And so you kind of look and you get the feeling like, okay, maybe there's something to this. It looks like people are enjoying the food. So that would be Chinta uh, Mayapanya. Sorry to go. No, please. That, 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 but um, it really inspires me. And then finally, there's what's referred to as Bhavana Mayapanya or direct experience for oneself. And then what, finally, once you've tasted the food yourself, then you realize, okay, like this, this does taste very good. You're right. Yeah, that's the thing that really separates at the end, which is like when you actually feel it on yourself. Because mm-hmm. it might work for other people, but then even if you believe that it works on other people, you might, if it doesn't work for you, you might imagine that you're just built different, which, by the way, might be the case because some people are just having a hard time with it, right? Or you, whatever the, like you would come up with a million reasons as to why there's something wrong with you or what, but it's just not like Eckhart Tolle says, like if it, it's not true unless it's true for you. Mm. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right. That's what really separates it. But, and that actually brings me to like an interesting point that I wanted to ask you before. <laughs> when you said that you uh, wanted to potentially do the, actually become like, actually become a monk, like mm-hmm. you were seriously considering it. Uh, which, by the way, I I didn't I've never considered it seriously for as a lifelong, but I actually and I might still do it. I really want to maybe do it for a year. That would be mm. like a great just learning experience for me. I'll come join you. That would be amazing. I've got a couple uh, places picked out. We can oh okay, I'm happy. Somebody already did the research. Um, I'm just kidding, by the way. Why? Um, maybe someday, but yeah. not not in the near future. No, it doesn't seem like the near future holds that for me. But I'm I'm serious about that being a real potential item on my bucket list. Me too. Yeah. It would it would be far, far down the... I think a year road. is reasonable. I think I can do it for a year. And I think it would actually benefit me and everybody around me in a way that is worth the... Mm. Yeah. I, if well you, said. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would have to go into it with the strong determination to, like, come back. There's no other way. I, <laughs> to come back and, like, you know, I, oh, I see. okay. I'd see myself, like, uh, supporting my family, like, emotionally and, like, physically being there and stuff like that. So I wouldn't really want to kind of run away from that but yeah um, but also by then they might invent teleporting and you can just like go for like a weekend <laughs> or you might discover it there at the uh at the, yeah at, at the, the retreat you just show up is it was it like in ace ventura in the second moment just teleported with the monkey um 
So uh, the question I wanted to ask you is that when you were thinking about that, there was this very real question that you, because you were already in a committed relationship, right, with your current girlfriend when you were considering it, right? Uh, it was mostly before that. Before that, okay. Yeah, before but, that. But I think you told me that you, like, it was a serious thought. So let's say, okay, so let's just, just play pretend in that case. If this would be a thought that would actually be hovering now, how would you go about that? Do you see that as like, okay, because you just said like no no time in the near future did you see that. And would that be because of your loved ones, because of your relationship with the, with your significant other and, and your parents? Would that be one of the biggest impediments to make that decision to actually go out there and commit? Definitely. So I just... When COVID came around and I was considering, well, maybe I'd like to be in a monastery or maybe I'd like to share what I have with the world. What came up for me was, well, let me kind of play this out and let me see what I have to share and let me see if I feel like I'm doing more good in the world or if I'm doing more good in one of these monasteries. And to tell you the truth, I think I would really, really enjoy spending a lifetime cultivating the mind without a lot of the um, obstacles of daily life um, that most of us share. And so during that time, I actually started writing my first book, which was a children's book at school. I love to meditate. And that kind of led to a series of events where I felt like there's more I have to share outside of uh, just a closed room in silence and things like that. So actually, then you're living, as an example, you're living at exactly what my, I guess my one conundrum is with that whole world, which is, or was, now it's less, but which is like you, you, you have to make that distinction, which is like, where are you actually benefiting the world more? Yeah, I'd like to think so. And I was actually listening to really um, one of my favorite, like, audio, audio talks by a woman who lived a while ago named Ananda Mayama on the way over here. And she was talking about how actually the life outside of uh, renunciate life can be more effective in leading to liberation because you're kind of a ping pong ball back between um, between like all these pleasures and all these like daily ordeals. And so you kind of start to go back and forth between like like the pleasures of regular life and the kind of frustrating parts and it leads you to this sense of okay I, I, I kind of want to go beyond this I want to transcend this in in a way and sort of daily life can be a catalyst for going beyond the ordinary mind oh definitely because it's so mundane exactly yeah and because it's so not like extraordinary exactly yeah. you're not wearing robes you're not chanting you're not um isolated with just a few other people that are also living in that same exact way you're um someone just told you to do the dishes so you you kind of like yeah there's what, nothing, there's, what are you going to do with that you know like yeah. uh you you got to go sweep the floor there was an accident something spilled like that's that's gonna be there's no glory in it a great opportunity to work on some patience but even though i'm sure that that the monk life also gets like it just gets mundane. Like, it's just like, you know, in the beginning, you might have like this, like, oh, I'm a monk, you know? <laughs> but yeah. then after that, just like, I'm sure it dissipates very quickly. Um, I'd say so, but um, in my personal experience, I think um, 
developing like a very deep sense of focus and meditation is kind of a, a food for the mind and you can start to feed on that in a sense and it's a very it, it's kind of what lubricates the practice in a way it's like lubrication for all these gears in the practice because if you don't have like something that the mind can feed on it's gonna go back towards thinking of sensual pleasures and like uh delicious food or like great experiences or traveling here or there so instead of feeding it with all these like pleasures from the five senses what you're doing is you're feeding it with concentration and that's one of my favorite analogies. So basically the meaning portion of it. So you, instead of getting meaning from that, through your experiences with the senses, you're getting meaning out of the fact that you, or you wouldn't define it that way. I wouldn't say meaning, I would say pleasure. So there is kind of a sense of pleasure or satisfaction or just like a calming effect to the mind when mm. you can come back into a deep sense of focus like a stilled focus on command through like cultivating that mental muscle and that's sort of an alternative to all the stimulation that we get in daily life so i see what you're saying and i think that the word meaning is just a little bit problematic because it has so many different connotations mm -hmm. i guess to me the way i use the word meaning in my own mind at this point it refers to the thing the to the thing within itself in other words, it is the essence. So when I say meaning, it's the field of all the relationships that everything uh, has in relation to everything else, but mostly in relation to itself. So it's almost like the essence of the thing. So for example, if I say the meaning of red, which I'm aware this is a little different than how pe most people use the word meaning, but for me, the meaning of red is the redness of red. It's not all the stuff that we can say about red. So like the wavelength that produces it or the how our eye perceives it. It's that almost like there's a component of redness in the universe itself. It's almost like existence has red in it. And then there's all the things that interact with that red. Now in the Western world, we always think of it in terms of relational values between things. So it's like, it's not red unless somebody's looking at it, right? Mm -hmm. And for me when i'm thinking about it it means that the redness of red exists on its own side and we just happen to partake in that moment but we have the same thing we have also an essence to what we are and then those those essences essentially interact now i'll tell you why i'm actually why this matters and it's just like <laughs> a little philosophical game that i'm playing with myself so the reason that it connects for me for more than just a philosophical point is because if that's true like in practical terms, then there's something about um, experiencing the truth of the moment that has value even to science. Mm -hmm. So so in that sense that, you know, in Vipassana, one of the biggest things is things for what they really are and not what you want them to be or what you think they are, right? Mm -hmm. That's you quiet your mind enough to just see what the true moment is, mm -hmm. which the, you know, the underpinning assumption here is that the thing actually is something. Definitely. Uh, right? So if it is something, there is certain components of that something that when they become apparent, we can all, I think we can all agree from the scientific point of view and from the uh, a traditional point of view, like we're talking about like, you know, like Eastern traditions, yeah, spiritual traditions, that you always want to know 
the most accurate version of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It it you want to understand uh, the engineering of a rocket in rocket science the closest you can possibly get to the true state of affairs of whatever it takes to actually build a rocket without it exploding, right? Mm-hmm. And the same is true of our state of just being, just understanding the true nature of the operational manners that happen under the hood of your mind because it helps you live a better life because if you understand what actually is happening like if you think if you understand that there's no such thing as being angry but there's just like an impulse of what we call anger that basically just takes over and convinces you that somehow it's you when in reality it's not you it's just like an almost like an external force well i would i would say that that's kind of one to be careful with because there's kind of two sides of that of saying like uh well there is no self so it's not really my anger but then again there's times where it's important to take responsibility for those things so that you can change them so way. i agree so let me rephrase then so yeah. i think the more accurate way of of saying it would be that there are certain attributes of of your moment-to-moment experience mm-hmm. then when you notice it to a more accurate degree there's more control of the situation whether you believe in the self or not doesn't matter like you can actually not be angry even though you feel anger so that's a possibility when you practice enough uh meditation so i've noticed i can tell you from my personal experience when i come back from uh from a 10-day retreat to a certain degree it really feels like neo being able to stop to stop bullying <laughs> like in some way like you can there's a much longer period of time between the moment that you notice that you're slightly irritated mm-hmm. to it growing into a full-fledged action action or anger right and then there's it's almost like the awareness because it's almost like you know in the iphone when you when you when you uh scrubbing through a video Mm -hmm. if you press long enough it kind of expands and now you have like more control over where the dial is Mm -hmm. and that's what it feels like to me that i almost like i notice more of the stretch of the emotion from this from the moment that it's being generated and before it becomes like a full action, as in before, I was only aware of it when literally I became angry. Like it became, mm. it, it, it encompassed my entire body. And now I'm just like, literally just like angry, right? Yeah, I would I would push back on a little bit on the point where sometimes people will say, I was, I was just observing my anger. I wasn't actually angry. I would say as long as those feelings are there, that that emotion is still an emotion that you're feeling. So, yeah. so that's an interesting avenue to explore. I'm actually very excited about this. Would you, would you then say that you, you, you so you're less in, the, you're less on board with the statement, the self is a complete illusion. Well, you know what? I, I kind of refer back to a really cool guy, the Buddha, and there were so many questions that when they were brought to him he would refuse to answer. And his rationale behind that was he was saying it's like uh, somebody who's been shot with an arrow. So you got shot with an arrow and the doctor is there and he's going to take it out of you. And before he's going to take it out of you, you say, whoa, 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 wait, I want to know what the arrow is made of. I want to know who shot the arrow. I want to know like what the person who shot the arrow's name is. Like you're asking all these questions, but what the, what the real important factor is is hey there's an arrow in here you got to take it out and there's some things that are going to lead to more peace and joy and those are the things that should be focused on not necessarily like 
uh, questions. But. So I think, so I understand what you're saying, but I don't necessarily think it applies to what I'm trying to say. And the reason... I would agree with you, though. I would agree. I would agree that it I might. Love, I love this. Yeah, I love this. But uh, and 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 I fully understand with, with what you're saying. And this allegory essentially is there to illustrate the fact that people are just focused on the wrong questions that don't pertain to the immediacy of the current situation. So there's the, you know, if again you got to take care of the thing first before you start asking all those extra questions about it. And I, I agree with all of that. Is uh, the only difference is I would say. That in this particular case, the thought that we have about what the self is, mm -hmm. is a type of a heuristic that actually does work. Mm. So essentially, the either if I think about it this way, so I can speak for myself, for example, it helps me reformulate the situation in real time, many times. So... The fact that I'm, I'm, I remember that I see it that way actually makes it easier for me to sometimes say, wait a second, step back. Seeing it as... Seeing it as what it is, right? So right, you're right. Mm -hmm. If we start playing this conceptual game too much, now we're getting out of the game of actually solving the problem because we're just talking like a philosophical general game. Exactly. But I do think that that particular concept... Now, obviously, I'm also asking you here for the for the interest of it because we're on a mm -hmm. podcast and it's just fun to kind of Definitely. shoot it back and forth. But uh, so I'm, I don't mind philosophical discussions. But but in this particular case, I also think it's a real it's a real it's a real frame that can actually help you do certain kind of work. Absolutely. And and I don't I don't know if I I'm fully myself on board with the idea that the self is a complete illusion because again it also exists as a pretty persistent form in the mind it's true that if you really pay attention it it seems to show itself as pretty thin i agree with that mm -hmm. but nevertheless it has a very persistent persistent I... occupancy of our mind to to not i don't think it's justified to call it a complete illusion i i'm actually there i would encourage one to take the perspective of self as a verb rather than a noun. And it's almost like a tool, like a hammer that you can pick up when it's necessary and put down when it's not serving you. So there are certain things like building characteristics of perseverance and mindfulness and empathy and things like that, where it's very important to build those up as a sense of self and building those up as something that you're proud of and something that you're actively cultivating. And so that is an example of self as a verb where it's skillful. That's a skillful thing to do is developing a positive It is a self. the self, basically. It's like a thing you pick up. It's like a thing. It's like a tool in your tool. Exactly. Yeah. I, would, I would encourage people not to jump either, either way completely, mm. um, but rather it's kind of like a hat you can put on or take off. That's yeah. a really way, good way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't take complete credit for that. It's um, just me sort of transmitting a bunch of things that I've learned over the years. Yeah. And one that's helped um, me, I, this uh, self as we call it. So first of all, yeah, we're in full agreement. Boo, boring. <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if, if, 
both of us are in a, agreement, then I think that means one of us is irrelevant, right? No. I've oh, heard that. Oh my God, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> so well, terrible. If, if, two people are always, <laughs> if two people are always agreeing on something, then one is irrelevant. Okay, I'm going to use that. I have, I have a different one, but I can't. I, not I that can't. I believe that in this case yeah, yeah. or in any case. So actually what I wanted to say, so first of all, yes, we are in full agreement here pretty much with everything. But uh, the other thing is what I was actually trying to get at in a very convoluted way, I, I'm aware of that, uh, is that I started this by saying that I, the reason is the, the whole thing with the red is not just a philosophical discussion for me. Mm-hmm. It's because I think that there are certain components to what the, what the moment-to-moment experience of human being is that contains information that I think is actually very pertinent to be able to build certain technologies, like even external technology. Like for example, I can totally imagine a day in which not getting the color that we see right in the way that it's executed in a virtual reality can cause some serious mayhem of some sort, right? So there's, there's, or this is like a very simple example, but I think that it runs much deeper than that. I think that noticing certain components of experience actually has information in it that can allow us to operate certain kinds of futuristic technologies. Mm. And at the moment, there's really not enough on the table to be able to substantiate something like that. But I have a very strong intuition that that's the case. And there's, a, there's not a lot that you have to take on board for the, on, in order to get there. One of the most simplest things, it would be the fact that experience seems to be the one thing you you... you are absolutely convinced of, and at the same time, you have need no proof of. Like, it's the one thing that you don't need any proof of. It doesn't matter how it arises. You can be a brain in a vat. You can be, I don't know. It doesn't matter how this happens. Mm-hmm. The fact that it happens is not under question. It's the only thing that is not under question. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what it, what the only thing that, for me, we need to take on board in order to understand that if that's the case, that there must be some components of the experience that can tell us certain things about how to build certain things. And I think science is just not thinking about it in this way at the moment, but I think that we'll, I really think that we're going to get to a place in which this actually plays a real... One thing that really excites me, and I don't have much or any of a scientific background, but a lot of the ideas I've heard from quantum physics, and I'm, I'm sure some of my ideas that I've gotten from it aren't, or some of the thoughts that have been given to me from it aren't totally valid, but the idea that our awareness affects outer reality, I think is very powerful. Like the that whole idea that our subjective experience has an effect on what we are experiencing in a way. And I think that really points to the idea that reality is a mind created experience rather than a very fixed form and i feel like that's like the next level up from einstein's relativity in a way yeah the idea that like our awareness is changing things yeah and it's a it's a big point of contention to be honest uh especially you know among the harder sciences because a lot of the times those concepts are being hijacked by new age nonsense and again, the, I don't know much or anything. Oh, about this is this. not this is not to say anything about what you just said because I happen to th- agree with you. Mm-hmm. I just uh, all I'm saying is that there is this trend that mm-hmm. also exists 
that because of it, there's like it becomes a big point of contention. Because okay. of it, there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance from science to this kind of talk mm-hmm. because it's being hijacked by people who are just trying to make money mm-hmm. by selling this as an idea that th- didn't go through the same methodology and rigor. Yeah, that it went through in order to even get to those ideas. Absolutely, and and I think it's unfortunate because what you said, I personally think, it's absolutely correct. I think that there's there is this sense in which a lot of people misappropriate th- these concepts, but also there is a sense in which those that what you just said is absolutely true, and more than in the sense that you know when you you know feel a certain way, then people smile at you and that kind of stuff. No, like in a very real sense where the world itself might actually be responding to your state, mm-hmm. to how you feel, to how you, everything that you would imagine that the spiritual talk would, you know, kind of mm-hmm. uh, prescribe, it would be that. It would be the the fact that, that your mind is somehow influencing the external world. And then the question is, well, is the external world even there, right? Because if you really think about it, there's no reason to think that. Like it's just an assumption we're making, but there's no experiment that you can make that you can set up that will ever tell you that. That's not a that's not something that science can actually do. And to turn this one back on you, I don't know if you've had like an experience like this, but changing, like having certain kinds of interactions with people when practicing like metta, mm-hmm. metta meditation, loving kindness meditation, and. Like when you kind of bring that into your daily life, I don't know if you've seen like changes with like people around you or if like before you like um, see someone at the cash register, you just kind of think to yourself like, I hope they, I hope they have a beautiful life. I might never see them again, but I just, I wish them well. I don't know if you, have you had any kind of- And then my day turned? No. And then like that interaction becomes like something you weren't expecting, like on a consistent basis, like- uh, With that person or in my day? After even if I never interacted with them, well, just like seeing changes in the environment around you when you're kind of sending out yes. positive thoughts. Definitely, definitely experienced that. And in fact, it this this uh, this kind of stuff runs very deep for me because I. So first of all, one of the most noticeable things for me was. I don't know if I if I ever told you this, but I um. About four years ago, I basically threw everything I owned. Uh, to in the landfill, like I just threw everything away, mm. like physically, like I just took everything and threw everything away. Interesting. Did I ever tell you this? No. Okay, so I basically I had a I had a really cushiony job. I was uh, making really good money. I was, you know, living in any way that I wanted. I, you know, I lived in Westwood in a big apartment. Everything was, like, you know, what you would consider, I guess, like real freedom, right? Yeah. But then uh, I had, uh, even though I'm a pretty healthy guy, I had this crazy back pain. And I went to the doctor and he said, uh, oh, you have two herniated discs, L5 and uh, L3. And it's not just bulging. It's like fully burst, like it's fully herniated. And that was the explanation of my back pain. And then it, it, it became worse and worse. And then that's when I got started having those sciatica episodes in which you see your sciatic nerve is like super inflamed. And it got to the point where they prescribed prescribed uh, morphine mm. to me. That's how bad it was. Like, really, I had, like, a prescribed uh, uh, morphine. And um, I got to a point where sometimes for a week I could barely walk. And also it's so excruciating that you can't even, because it's just the nerve that as long as it, there's any tension on it, mm. you're in tremendous pain. Oh, I'm so it sorry d- to hear 
Oh yeah, it was like awful. So you can't. It doesn't matter. I couldn't stay in the same position for more than three minutes. So like I can't. I could actually couldn't lay down. Couldn't sit for more than three minutes. Oh. There's no. There's no escape. It's like hell, right? So I've had this for a long time. Not all the time, but like it would come and go. And one fateful night, um, I got up. I, I couldn't sleep. It was like four a.m. And I just. For two years, I guess I was contemplating this idea that I'm going to quit and I'm going to, you know, do something else. And I was already doing other things outside of that. I was, you know, doing acting. I was, uh, I started my, my, my brand. I was doing other things, but when I would come back home, I, I wouldn't have like necessarily enough energy to kind of do my full force with it, right? The creative process and everything. Definitely. And then I, I that night I just couldn't sleep. And it was like, I remember it was like almost 4 a.m. And I just got up. And it, it was really strange. It didn't feel negative at all. So I, I can't say it was a psychotic break. Uh, but I wasn't doing it. I wasn't doing it. I just got up. My body got up. And it was like a, oh, fully aware. And I just took the sh- bookshelf right above my bed. And I just took it off the wall. Literally just like. And I just dropped it. And I didn't stop moving. Until two days later, my entire apartment was all in bags all in the middle of the living room, including I was on the first floor, so I literally took the small couch and I just like threw it off the balcony, like to the side of the thing, to the alley, and then just dragged it out. And I went and I got the biggest U-Haul I could find, and it took me three trips to the Calabasas uh, 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 landfill. You just pay $40 every time you go. And I have this on video. I like literally threw everything away, including two, actually one brand new TV, one a friend of mine begged me to give him so I gave him that TV because it was like it was a really nice TV I had like a big table I had like I threw away a lot of things like very valuable things like in money right and the whole time I was just like you know at a certain point it was like it's almost like I was waking up from the strands because it was going on for like two or three days and I was like what are you doing like it's just like and I was like no like just put it in the storage and and the other part was just no, just like out. And every time I would do it, I felt lighter. And I just threw everything away. Wow. And I drove back and I came back home and I opened the apartment and I looked and it was just like an empty apartment. And I didn't have a plan. I was just like, okay, this is happening. And then I just called the, the, the guy that I was working with at the time and I just gave him my two weeks notice. I I uh, I gave my uh, two weeks notice in the apartment, and I just trusted the process. Here's the crazy part: this is a hundred percent true. I'm not adding any information to this. I'm not confabulating that adding one detail here. I've never experienced that pain again in my life. Whoa! Not once. The next day, it was gone. So. Wow. I know that that shit is real. I know this is real. My body was yelling at me. It's like, what are you doing? It's literally gone. And I I was carrying equipment because I kept some stuff for like the camera and stuff because I wanted to do like production and stuff. And I was running all around town. Oh, you know, the car was gone. I was running all around town on buses and like just doing like, you know, like basically starting from scratch. And I have not felt angst or pain of that sort ever again. Whoa. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. 
I'm not even going to try to begin to like intellectualize why that might be. Well, I mean, I get we 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 can we yeah we can we can totally try and break it down. But I'm telling you that just that one portion of the control of your mind over your physical state, there's no question at all. The mind body connection is just only starting to get touched by Western science, Western medicine. So you're right. The the science only now starts to understand what is the true mind body connection. But here's an interesting fact for you, and this, anybody can go and verify this. This is an absolute, absolutely true. One of the biggest meta-analyses that they did, which is essentially an analysis of all the, you know, of all the tests, is that if you aggregate together, statistically, all the cases, if you combine all the cases of people who have uh, chronic pain that has no explanation. You know, that's an actual phenomenon. Like, people have, like, insane pain sometimes. Yeah, like, fibro- uh, fibromyalgia and, like, different things. Like- well, no, because fibromyalgia, people actually say, okay, that's the fibromyalgia is the cause, right? I'm okay. saying, like, I like, have no idea what's wrong with you. Like, okay. literally, there are doctors that are specialized in this, that people come to them. That's an actual thing. They have insane pain, like, the incapacitating pain, and they have no idea why that is. Mm. So if you combine those cases with the number of people that have severe injuries, like mine, for example, with the with the two herniated discs, mm-hmm. which I don't feel at all anymore since that day. Uh, if you combine all the cases like mine now, which is that, that you have some kind of an obvious injury, but you don't feel any pain. Yeah. The contribution of the actual injury to the pain over time shrinks to exact zero, statistically. There's no correlation. Mm. In other words, there's some kind of a valve in the brain that that actually mitigates and controls this flow of what the signal of pain is. It, so you can actually not feel any pain even though you have the injury and you can have the worst kind of pain without any injuries. And the other thing, and, I'll, and, I'll, and then I'll let you respond because to me that's the most obvious and it kind of blows my mind that you know scientists can talk about it as if it's nothing. When I hear the... If there's anything that drives me up the wall is when I hear the phrase, it's just placebo. And I'm like, what do you mean by just? You understand that it's effective 33% of the time? What do you mean by just? You you have no idea how this happens. You have no idea how 33% of the time a person convinces themselves that everything is fine and it's fine. Like, And you, you there's no account for this. And somehow you're saying just attached to this thing yeah that's just like i believe how the whole placebo thing started was in i believe one of the world wars they were trying to treat people on the battlefield with morphine and one of these i think it was a female nurse she ran out of morphine and so the next people that needed morphine for like life-threatening injuries she just pretended to put morphine and it worked this is fascinating. And by the way, did you know that um, placebo, the more aggressive the the invasion of uh-huh. whatever it is, the, the more effective yeah. it is? Yeah, that's crazy. So if you put like a, if you take a pill, it's like a certain level of effectiveness. But if you get like 10 people to like all poke and prod and then like inject and like strap and like do all these yeah. things, it's way more It's effective. like 50%. Yeah. yeah. And this is real statistics that all those educated doctors are fully aware of. And yet, still, there's this insistence that no, it's just placebo. It's like, and I, I think that points again to the, 
to the effectiveness of things like Vipassana meditation where it seems to be working. And there might be some question marks over in the modern world, but over there, they like in all these different spiritual traditions, they say, hey, like these physical ailments that you're feeling are actually tied to mental knots. And when you can untie those mental knots, the physical pain will change. Yes. And actually, if the, this, it's actually kind of funny because we just dove into the whole Vipassana conversation and because I guess we're doing it, so it was obvious to us. But would you actually walk us through uh, a brief explanation of what a Vipassana uh, practice is? Like, Definitely. So the word Vipassana, it really just means insight. And it comes from... It comes from the teachings of the Buddha. It comes from the language Pali. And depending on the school of thought that you go based on, there's Anapana meditation, or uh, which is like breath meditation. And that would lead one to Samatha, so like calmness of the mind. And then there's also... So it gets a little bit tricky here because... Um, some schools of thought will say that breath meditation leads to samatha and vipassana. So it leads to calmness of mind and insight. And some would say that there's actu an actual action that you would do called vipassana. Um, so this is, this is I, I think this might be coming a little bit too esoteric for people who have never done it. Def before, yeah. So before you, you go down that path, can you explain to people just... The, the simplest from technical point of view like what do we do in a vipassana retreat like what is the thing yes. that we do every day yeah good i like that let's yeah. start there yeah yeah so you, imagine somebody doesn't know anything about yes, vipassana perfect yeah. so you would start out by focusing on the sensation of the breath where it comes in and out of the nose so for most people that's like right around where the mustache is and like the edges of the nostrils in a way and you're going to be focusing somewhat in that area just with the breath that's it feeling the breath touch the skin in feel the breath touch the skin out and no visualization no verbalization just physical sensation feeling it and after a few days it actually starts to become very strong so a sensation that you were never able to feel before in your entire life the breath very subtly beneath the nose starts to become relatively clear and from that point what you do for the next seven days of the vipassana course if it's a 10-day course which most people start with you will bring your awareness through the body so you'll scan the body part by part feeling the physical sensation starting at like say the top of the head scanning each every little part of the body going down 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 feeling just the physical sensation say like through your arms through your legs through your torso and going back up and back down and anytime your mind starts to kind of wander you'll come back to the breath and when you start to feel a little bit more calm and centered then you can come back to the sensations all over the body and one thing i heard from a scientific perspective which i thought was really interesting is that the nerves that are connected right around like the mouth or where the air comes in through the nose so right around like above the top of the upper lip and 
below, below the nose, those, those nerve endings in that area are very deeply connected to sensation all over the body. So when you spend a lot of time focusing on the sensations right there around the nose area, it opens up sensations to the entire body for some reason. Hmm. Um, I heard that. Yeah. That would be interesting to look into, into why that happens. Yeah. And so apparently those are very closely connected. And so when you spend some time focusing on that narrow area of sensation, then it allows you to much more easily go into a larger canvas of the body. Um, which can be a bit more difficult because the mind will tend to wander when you're scanning through the body. Um, but there's a bunch of different schools of thought, some that would actually just stay only with the breath and wouldn't go through the entire body. But all of them are all of them are in agreement that you are able to calm the mind when you spend long periods with just the breath and the sensation of breathing and you're also able to develop insight into what is going on here for yourself so you're able to experience directly what is happening because whether you take the word of scientists or whether you take the word of buddha you only need to look through a microscope to see that we're made of these atoms that are constantly changing. And when you start to experience that for yourself, you start to experience life differently because you go, hey, like all of this, I'm not just thinking that it's changing. I can feel that it's constantly changing. Yeah. And I think that one of the biggest uh, points to, for me, from this whole thing, so for example, science would resist the proposition that you actually feel any atoms you just feel some you know basic sensations in your body and this is just purely made in the mind and then it goes into the whole argument of what comes first you know the mind or the or the i think that this is the one example where your analogy would run very deep with the with the story with the arrow which is like that's just the wrong question because it, it depends what you're trying to achieve if you want to build a rocket yeah you're not going to sit and just be silent and that's one domain of inquiry that leads you to a particular thing. But if you're trying to live a better life, thinking about it in terms of geometry and engineering will almost definitely not yield the best results for you. You actually want to pay attention to the thing that you're trying to improve, which is your internal world. And according to Vipassana, the kind of like the main, one of the main tenets is that the only reality can be sensed through the body. Like there's no other reality but what you can feel with your body, which, you know, I have my own kind of like thoughts about that for, for better or worse. But I think that is a very powerful tool to really, to actually anchor us into what at least in the immediate moment, what is actually happening around us. Well, I, I would push back a little and I would say it, the what they're teaching there isn't necessarily that what you're experiencing in the body is all that is there but i think the main thing to get from that is that what you're experiencing in the body is the most direct link to what's important to you right now for living a happier life that's interesting in a way so i thought i understood that and i'm you know open to revise that i just i thought i understood even from goenka if i'm not mistaken in one of the talks that he talks about it directly where he says that the only reality is in the body so I got that wrong. There's like a there's a much more expansive picture here. This according to to this might get a little 
like very subtle, but I think they would say that even things that you're able to see visually create very subtle physical impressions on the body as well. So there's nothing that you can experience that is going to be outside the realm of physical sensations in a way. Mm. As su I know that sounds very subtle, but what they would argue is if you see something that's beautiful, the reason that that's beautiful for you isn't because of necessarily what you're actually seeing, as strange as that sounds. It's the physical sensation that accompanies that perception. I see. So, okay, so the physical sensation is the thing that actually appropriates your experience of anything you will ever be able to come in contact with in a way yeah okay so okay so that i, I don't think it, it doesn't disregard the idea of physical material reality as like an objective thing outside of the body yeah i wonder how it well it doesn't it won't matter to anybody in a vipassan tradition because it's not an equity that they're interested in but it would be interesting to see if we develop all of a sudden some understanding in the, uh, that we actually can both influence and experience things which seem to be outside of our bodies, then it would kind of fly in the face of that proposition, like in the actual like core of that proposition. But of course, again, this is where the it just becomes like a philosophical thing versus like a thing that is effective to actually live a better <laughs> life. Um, so before before we wrap up, I wanna I wanna ask you I wanted to really touch up on another small thing that is uh, seemed to be also a big portion of your life, which is uh, highlighting. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's actually this is what I the what? Sorry. Climbing and highlighting. Climbing and highlighting. Yeah. Uh. So, uh, because that's actually what I heard you talk about in the podcast. So I was like, I was like, oh, that would be a great <laughs> subject, and that's the last thing that I'm talking about. Um. I I also have a uh, friend that does that. Um. And this I, I the only time I tried it is like I basically just hung, like I, I've done it like not high, but then when it was high, the only thing I've done is like just really hang on that like that terrified. Um. Was it, uh, did you, do you usually start with it way lower, uh, and then you do highlighting or did you actually, like, I, to, I started split? with it lower and, okay. and worked up. I've been doing it for a while. It's kind of, uh, for those who don't know highlining, it's like walking on tight ropes, but, but just um, like really high. Up. You can also do Ver yeah. versus slacklining, which you is can do it very high. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind of another extension of my spiritual practice and another tool that, I find really fun that I can use to calm down the mind and calm the body and really kind of kind of play with that sense of fear in a safe environment in a way. And climb well to yeah to, to a degree to a degree yeah, yeah yeah. And climbing came before it, after it, with it. Before before. So you started slightly. Climbing. I've been climbing for about fourteen years and then highlighting for maybe. 10. Oh, that's a while. Yeah yeah, climbing's been a big part of my life. And so not bouldering, climbing, actually, like... Yeah, yeah, I actually climbed uh, Half Dome a couple weeks ago. The uh, Oh, really? Yeah, the the steep side in Yosemite with a friend. Oh, I think I've seen pictures. I didn't know what it was. Wow, that's incredible. How, yeah. long, how long does it take you to do that? Uh, the actual climbing part was about eight hours, um, and then there was a bunch of hiking involved. We did it, like, under 24 hours. So Wow, that's yeah. pretty fast. Did you ever have like a really gnarly, uh, dangerous situation? I'm sure you have some stories, no? Not really. Uh, there was a time when I used to climb without a rope and there were a few like... Like solo? Yeah. No way. Uh, yeah, I don't do that anymore, but... Wait, 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 wait. That, you, can't just, you can't just throw it out there and just not say anything else. That, that's 
that's insane. That's like Alex Honnold stuff. What? Yeah, you know, honestly, I kind of, yeah, no, uh, like Alex Honnold was a huge thing for me growing up, just like seeing his stuff and just like <laughs> cool guy. Um, that's great. But yeah, you know, I kind of, I wouldn't say I like pushed it to the limit because obviously I'm still here, but just like farther than I'd ever feel comfortable doing again. And kind of with the idea that like maybe there's some sort of insight into like life and death at those like quarter edge of um kind of being reckless you know that and kind of coming back from that there's really nothing to gain i found from like living on the edge or sort of you too, uh, sort of for lack of a better term, playing with human life in that way. That's, yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, soul climbing essentially means rock climbing without any ropes. Uh, that's crazy. So, okay, so first of all, that's an amazing fact about you. Mad respect, obviously. But it seems like uh, it was there, it, there wasn't, it wasn't like an accident. You just basically decided that it's too risky and it's not something that is worth, worth it risking. It just didn't feel right, you know? It's like you kind of uh, consider like what would I really make of my life if I died doing this like yeah. it'd be such a waste yeah how just a one question before uh i jump to something else i want to ask you what is the how long did it take you before you decided like you feel comfortable doing that like how long were you climbing uh quite a few years it was at least like five six years something around there okay and so you I, feel like you're at a certain and i had been doing it like very consistently like i was on like climbing teams like growing up and it was like my whole life like i'd spend like okay. seven days a week at the climbing gym like climbing as a kid and like my brain wasn't fully developed and i saw like some heroes of mine like they'd climb without ropes so i was like okay like let's do this but now fortunately i think i'm getting to the point where my brain's a little more developed and uh that's off the table these days like so, really <laughs> I, from what i understand even alex honnold stopped right there was something that no, happened. No, he keeps going. Oh, he keeps going? I thought yeah. he stopped. Okay. So. No, he's had a kid and stuff, but he, he's, he's solo is a little, you know. Yeah. And what was, what, what was the the highest you ever climbed solo? Um. You don't want to say. It's a good amount. It's, it's a good, good amount. amount. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll leave Too it at high. that. Too high. Too high. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's what ended it, by the way? No. No. Um, just, I mean, the highest ones weren't necessarily the times where I was like, uh, it, you don't even have to be that high to be honest. I think that like I mean, thirty you, feet is yeah, it's really enough to high. kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A thousand feet is really like no difference than like fifty. Yeah, it's it's well, pretty much over in both of them. Well, yeah. no, no, no. I, I maybe at a hundred survive. Yeah, the yeah. I don't know. It's a sure thing. It doesn't matter. But yeah. either way, I mean, there's just so many ways to enjoy yourself, even climbing, where you don't have to put your life at risk. That um, it's just something I really enjoy, and so now I do it with respect for my body and my mind and my life and I, it's a nice way to get outdoors too so. yeah <laughs> it is a nice way to get outdoors so uh let me then bring it full circle to the beginning of your journey which i'm sure will keep accompanying you throughout your life which is finance you uh what was the specific like how you said you were around that mm -hmm. what is that specifically investments or uh like like uh managing other people's money like how did it actually look like exactly so it's just comprehensive fi financial planning so the whole the whole thing um and you know it's funny when i was a little kid i remember being like four or five years old and like 
like putting all these coins like together really nicely in like little coin sleeves and like I'd have like all these papers up on a wall and I'd just be writing like one, two, three, four, like to like thousands, just like little kid, like writing like numbers. And uh, it was really funny. And I think at like five or six years old, there's like a paper I have somewhere. It's like, when I grow up, I want to be an insurance salesman. And like, <laughs> just because I, I saw my, that's what my dad did. And it's, uh, it's like a part of what we do today. So we manage investments and insurance taxes estate planning that kind of thing and it's been really interesting to tie it to uh, tie it all together with going from potentially leaving all what i know behind and becoming a buddhist monk to like fully in the world like as in the world as you can kind of get in a way um helping people plan for the future and that's a big one because people always have this association with, uh, you know, fiduciaries and people who manage your money, which has a little bit almost like a dirty streak to it. Mm-hmm, right? Yeah. And this is something that, like, doing it ethically, it seems to be oh, almost like an oxymoron to a lot of people. <laughs> but, uh, but I like, knowing you and understanding who you are a little bit, I there's no doubt in my mind that the way that you guys are doing it, it must have, a, like, deep ethical components. Would you say that from you observing the that world, is it closer to that perception of the public? Or do you think that that's more of a, just a very deep caricature because of what we know about Wall Street and stuff like that? You know, I, I think luckily because of the crowds that we run in, it's, it's not necessarily true. Like I've been blessed to see many people that are very ethical and things like that, but I do know that there's people out there that are running around and they don't have people's best interests at heart, but it's just really cool. Like my father founded this, what we do, his own practice, uh, 25 years ago. And he's just always been of the mentality that you give, 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 give. And then someday you might get, but that's not the main concern. And so it's been really cool to see him operate and, see him build matless wealth into everything that it is today and not with the idea of like oh how much am I going to make on this but like even if somebody comes to you and it's not like on paper it's not worth your time but you can see that it would add value to like some young person's life like you do it because it's just the right thing to do that's incredible but how do you manage your time then like how do you like if you know if if you're good obviously a lot of people are coming to you so you can't just take any case, unfortunately. So how do you... The harsh truth about that is there's not enough people that take that super seriously. And there's enough people out there that don't really seek financial help. Um, Actually, now that I think of it, that's probably true. And so it's kind of one of those things, you know, how like the teacher always has office hours, but like no one really goes. So they don't have like, it's not hard on them, you know? Hmm. It's kind of the same thing. Like, it's sort of like going to the dentist. Like, people don't love going to see their financial guy. I don't know, maybe when, like, the markets are up or something like that. But it's kind of something that a lot of people don't love doing. But it's, you, we try to make it so people do love doing it. And we do it in the best way that we can. But it's, it's kind of something that uh, we put out there. And when people do engage, it's very fruitful, but there's not a whole lot of, um, or there's, and I won't say that there's not a lot. There's just not as much as you might think. 
So, so the whole educational part of this, right? So like, obviously when you take people hand in hand and you're showing them like what they need to do, a big portion of that is educating them about the reasons for why they have to do this or that, mm -hmm. right? And this is something that I know that you're also thinking, maybe again, like we said off camera, it might be like very far in the future, but you were thinking about potentially maybe even writing a book about this, right? Yeah, yeah, I would. And sort of just incorporating the ideas of being rich versus being wealthy and kind of planning for a lifestyle that you want to live on your own terms completely detached from what anyone thinks you need to do and you can only put so many points on the scoreboard as my dad says um you can only put so many numbers into a bank account before you really stop to consider like what am i doing it for is it to spend more time with my grandchildren is it to go and take a trip here is it to be more empowered with my time like what am i doing and so it's really cool to kind of get a front seat to helping people not just like financial planning but like life planning like what what am i going to do with my life and i need resources to do that how am i going to organize this okay so it starts with the goals and then you then look at the current situation as it is as in like how much money a person makes and exactly where and then how do you allocate those funds plus obviously you know the living cost uh, which on paper sounds so simple but then i guess not a lot of, enough people are taking it seriously and there's a lot of facets to this what would be the you might not know this right now but an interesting question to maybe probe into what would be the focus of the thesis you feel like in your in your book would it be around that which is like actually putting a lot of emphasis on what are those decisions for like what do you actually what kind of life you want to live i that that would be the main point i don't think it would get super far into the weeds on the whole financial aspect i think it would be more about developing a life with your resources and how you're going to organize all that together and sort of sort of releasing oneself from the stigma that being involved with finance is inherently unspiritual in a way because if it's done correctly and if it's done without greed it, it can be a really beautiful thing i think and if it's done without with with a very clear sense and understanding of one's emotions hmm. yeah i think that's a big one the emotions isn't it mm -hmm. both in decisions uh like small decisions and big decisions you make in life and especially decisions you make with money and i mean I mean, it's kind of obvious that one of the biggest components you get, one of the biggest attributes you got to develop in order to be an investor, let's say, especially like day traders, it's like control your emotions, right? That's kind of like one of the biggest things because that's the, this where you make all the mistakes. What would you say about where we are now from your professional's point of view? Do you think it actually is? Can it, can, do you think this is actually like another bubble? Do you feel like this is actually right before like some kind of a way bigger collapse than what it is even now because of the wars and stuff? Uh, I'm not going to comment on Okay. That. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you heard it here first, folks. This is not financial advice. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> we're, not, we're not giving financial advice. This is uh, for educational purposes. Yeah, we just talked shit. <laughs> Like, no, no, no. But like, like, why wouldn't you want to talk about it? Is this something that you just like, because it's a part of the services you provide, or is it something you don't want to take that responsibility of like saying anything about that? Um, 
I could probably touch on it a little bit. I just it, it changes just your impression depending on um well so could you start over with that question real quick? Yeah, of course. So my question is, so I guess my question to you would be looking at the situation as it is right now, all taken into account, including the wars that are going on, the situation in the government, all the social tensions, all of that. Does it resemble in any way the big collapse in when was it the 20s the 30s when was the big uh oh the great depression the great depression right yeah so is it is it does it resemble the great depression in any way or this is just a lot of hype to actually achieve you know like finance people saying things like that in order to achieve their own goals and again this is not financial advice this is just you voicing your very general opinion about what it seems to you you know what i think the difference is now i think back then people would actually go hungry you know, like back then people were worried about death. Now we're more worried about prices. When things go down, we're not worried. Like people don't, I can't imagine. You're not going to starve. They're not going to starve like they would have back then. Um, so our our problems are better. The, the homeless guy on the corner and Warren Buffett both have money problems. One of them just has much better money problems. So our problems are getting better as we go into the future. And... Do I think we're kind of in a bear market? Personally, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously it's been going down. Um, do I think there's potentially more room to go down? I do, potentially. Um, but I also know that going back 100 years, the market has done pretty well for those who have put their money in and stayed there for a long term. And I think that's the main message that we try to share with people is that you can allow your money to work for you when you do it carefully and when you do it with mindfulness and with your future goals in mind. Like I have a car, but I don't know how the transmission works. I just know that it gets me from A to B. And the same thing with investing. You might not know exactly how it works, but you know that historically it has gotten people from point A to point B. So even during recessions, you would say if you just don't like make sudden movements, you would actually end up on top if you just wait it up, basically. Given a long enough time horizon, yes. And, and this is actually a question that I thought that really interests me. Uh, so, so you know, how to, people talk about uh, the bubble, right? And the bubble is going to burst. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the housing bubble and this bubble and the cars bubble, all kinds of bubbles. So... My question is, here's what I understand, and then you can tell me where I don't understand it at all. So what I, from what I understand, for example, what happened in 2008, right? It was that there was, a lot of, there was a lot of shady stuff going on with the way that the system was set up in the, in the mortgage industry. Mm-hmm. And there was a rating company that was basically giving false ratings. For Multiple certain, ratings companies. Multiple rating companies. Tons of people were bad actors in that situation. Okay, so basically they were just like literally like fabricating the actual rate uh, according to which a bank would give uh, a loan, right? And if it's like a high rate, let's say AAA, whatever it was, then the bank would approve a high loan, but then people wouldn't be able to pay that money. So basically they just gave a bunch of this money because now they the bank is owed that interest, that's the interest for the bank, right? And then the people... Who got the loans, obviously, eventually they couldn't pay it off because it just kept on sticking against them. So there's this situation that simply there's no one to actually pay off the money that is owed. Yeah. And now who's going to pick up the tap? Was that kind of like a... Yeah, so I don't want to bore the 
viewer, the listeners. Oh, no, this is for me. I, I would love to. Yeah, so those were collateralized mortgage obligations. So these passed through securities that basically these big banks, they took people's mortgages, they packaged them up, and they sold them to investors. But there were so many people that were buying those CMOs, collateralized mortgage obligations. So there was so much demand to be selling them that they started creating them out of thin air. So they were basically just giving these home loans to anybody that walked up without verifying anything just so they could pick it up and sell it to other investors. And they greed got the best of them. So it was like a hot potato. It was like whoever it lands in their hands, that's their problem. I already sold it. Now I'm owed this money, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So now, so now, okay, so that in view, what is this thing that, First of all, I don't. I really don't understand what kind of people throw this around. They say like, ah, it's, a, it's a new bubble. Like, I don't know what even what they're talking about. But do you know what they're talking about? Like, what kind of bubble people potentially talking about right now that might burst? Um, people are always going to talk about bubbles, and um, even if 2008 was a bubble, you know, that bubble's bigger now. So your money would still be worth more now. It's just that you said, for example, you said something interesting. You said, it, do I think it's a bear market? Yes. So, But there's a difference between a bear market and a complete a market collapse. Right? So I think I think the people are going to start uh, using the term bubble when they, they might not have their hands fully in this and they might not fully grasp everything. So it's just kind of a catch-all term for... Um, this is a terrible time to put your money in. Everything's going to go to zero. Uh, it's a bubble. Got it. And I. But really, it's just a. It's a, just a very, very bottom of a bear market. What you would call it. Yeah, and I mean, there definitely are bubble. There are real bubbles out there, like the uh, tulip mania and like the, like fifteen uh, hundreds or something. Fifteen hundred. Yeah, I think it was like the first like bubble. Oh history. really? It was of tulips. Yeah, it was. So it was for wait, flowers. Wait, I, I'm gonna sound like a complete moron right now. They had currency back then already, right? Fifteen hundred. That's pretty. Like, like this is currency. Yeah, this yeah. was in like, uh, it was like the Dutch trading company. No, but I mean like, I don't mean like coins. Like, I mean, did they had like a like a like a currency yeah, by the government? Yeah, there like were the... there were coins and stuff like that. But people started buying and selling these tulips. I think because they were able to get like interesting, cool looking varieties. So that's, again, I don't want to bore people too much, but that was the origination of calls and puts. So where you like calls and puts are options, they're derivatives on like financial security. So that's where that originates from because you could, you could use, that's where the call gets its name is you could call away that flower. You could buy the right to purchase that flower, which I'm getting a little complicated, but it was, it's kind of a cool case. Uh, scenario but no but that's actually if you can break it down I mean, obviously there's no way you're going to be able to break it down like fully because it, it really is a complicated thing but mm-hmm. actually if you can take a couple of minutes to break it down that would be super I think it would be actually very interesting so you, again I'll throw you away what I kind of understand about it and then you can correct me okay so it. so what I understand about uh about the deri- derivatives let's say which is I understand very little if mm-hmm. if it might show up right now that I understand anything but uh, what I understand is that it's essentially you you're essentially putting money into the success of a certain let's say stock versus the value of the stock itself. Would that be like a fair like you 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 putting your bet on the vector of where it's pointing is it going to go down is it going to go up and you're essentially putting money into whether you think it's going to succeed or not 
but not directly into its value. Would that be? Yeah, the, the price is what you pay. The value is what you get. And at okay, so explain that. At a certain point, price and value just get completely detached and totally skewed. And price might be in the sky and value is down at zero, which essentially you can use those tulips as a good example because it got to the point where people were buying and selling tulips that were more than the price of like mansions. And because of the demand, because people just thought that it was always going to go up. And it's like kind of the, I think it's called like the greater fool, like the idea that there's going to be someone out there who's going to pay more than you for this ridiculous thing. That sounds like crypto. Yeah, it does. (laughs) It sounds like first crypto. It does in a way, but there's definitely use and value there. I would argue in crypto. Yes. No, no, no. I know. Yeah. No, 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 no. But it's not, I'm just meaning the sense that it's like (laughs) there was a period in crypto life where all of a sudden enough people knew about it that even people that understood nothing about the functionality of each coin or or, or, of each currency, and then they just put all their money because they heard everybody talk about it, which is very different than understanding the functionalities of each coin. Yeah. We'll go through phases, and I think we'll be in another phase of that in the future. Um, but these, these things just, uh, the bubbles come, they burst and. So the, yeah. I, I want, I wonder if there's a way, like, I wonder if there's like a, we're on the verge of a truly new financial system. Like I, I my experience is when you, whenever you talk about, uh, to an expert about anything, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it is. The answer is almost always the same, which is that when you try and ask this question of like, are we on the verge of like a new way of doing this or that they tend to land on. There's nothing new under the sun. It will always be kind of the same tenets. It's just like the the same game, different players, and it will always be the case. Do you think that's true? Well, I think distributed ledger technology is a pretty big game changer. So that's the technology that's running behind Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's basically just an accounting sheet that's totally transparent. Everybody can see it, and it allows assets to move like very fluidly where they otherwise would not have been able to. But I think it's an imp- I think it's important to also recognize that no matter what we're dealing in, as long as there's humans involved, there's going to be human tendencies. So you have like the collapse of Celsius, FTX, like all these big cryptocurrency exchanges, they just totally imploded because there's humans. And even though the technology behind these cryptocurrencies is amazing and it might change the world, as long as we're dealing with humans, there's going to be human issues and it's the perception of humans of the situation basically which drives the price up or down because if everybody thinks it's great everybody buys if everybody thinks it sucks for whatever reason everybody sells even if it it's great they still sell it because everybody is selling yeah whether or not these cryptocurrencies are going to be worth uh whatever amount of money or they're going to be worth zero the thing that remains is the technology behind them is really incredible in that it could be used for things like escrow companies to transfer titles on houses seamlessly things of that sort so oracle level stuff like that exactly so it's really incredible in that way so the technology isn't going anywhere but these prices might come and go what do you think the dividing line between like you said we have better problems right do you think it's possible to get to a state in which the equivalent of a homeless person today is a person who has an apartment that always has enough money to live? The thing is, we it seems like we've been trading in a lot of our problems. So I think our physical comforts have 
been greatly, incredibly increased. But I think we've also had a lot of mental discomfort along the way. So I would imagine we have so much more physical comfort in the world nowadays, but we also have a lot of mental discomfort. So there's a lot of anxiety and depression. And I would point to a lot of using smartphones daily and people checking their phone like constantly, 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 like myself included, I'll get caught up in stuff like that. And I can tell that it kind of like pulls me emotionally in a certain direction. I think as long as there's mental anguish, I think there's always going to be some sort of something to tackle out there, you know, because I think a lot of those people that are homeless out there, I think it's more, I think they're, yes, they're in physical discomfort, but I think it's, I think it's just stemming from uh, like mental, mental issues. So it always goes back to really to your life's mission, which is yeah. to spread the, the, the insightfulness and the, uh, the inspiration that comes from the art of mastering your inner experience and the art of, of the, the true art of the present moment. Absolutely. And just to back up on one thing, I, I don't mean to take away from like providing like physical comforts, like, uh, providing homes for the needy or like food and stuff like that. I totally encourage all of that. And I think that's just wonderful and beautiful. Um, but I think there's a lot of people also in the world that have every physical comfort you can imagine, but there's still like a mental component missing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that the, in the end of the day, both games have to be advanced. I, I just always try and envision a future in which, again, the lowest of the low still have a roof over their, over their heads and like a, a, a dignified life, like a life that is, is, is with dignity that allows them the minimal human uh, needs uh, in a way that doesn't make them feel less than at least that, which is just a human. And then from there, you can, you know, if you, if, if, if the government takes care of that for most people or like help them find a job and helps them when there's like a mental illness issue, maybe even put them through like Vipassana courses. Hey, you know, that can be literally if the government takes this on board, this, I, I can't even in, imagine what, what great um, results this would yield if you would have people, you know, obviously some people are like need like more serious help, like, you know, mental illness, things like that and drug addiction. But yeah, I think this would resolve a lot of things, which is paying attention to putting a lot of emphasis and focus on what it's like to actually be a human from moment to moment, aside from fixing all the financial problems. Mm. Um, well, listen, Max, this is like a great place to, to, uh, tie this conversation. I, uh, um, I would love to see if you write that book, I would, like I told you off camera, I would love to read that <laughs> book. This would be something that, uh, uh, cause I think you would have a lot to add. I told you this before that I think there's something about your life's trajectory because of you were exposed to this stuff early on and saw success early on, you would have a lot more to say in in real terms to people uh, across the board because I think that when you make it after a certain age, you have a different, the, you, you, the struggle is part of the game for you. And I think that it doesn't always necessarily have to be and I think that some people are proof of that. So gaining this understanding early on, I think, is is has a tremendous value. So that's why I'm extra excited about you potentially actually putting something like this out there. 
Thanks. And just to uh, shamelessly promote myself, I've, I have uh, Yeah, yeah, I was about uh, to ask you where we could I've actually it. been working on a really cool book. I'll have to send you send you a copy. Okay, so you are working on a different book. Yeah, I'm okay. working on a couple, actually. I've got one called A Year for the Heart. I've been working on that for um, maybe eight months now, nine months. And... But I've I've had notes for it for years actually, and it's just a collection of 365 days of notes, things that inspire me, kind of bring peace to the heart, and notes basically written by myself for myself, but that are applicable to everybody. So it's kind of coming more from a place of learning together rather than like teaching people, and just a lot of things that I've found helpful. And uh, I'm I've been making a it's called my magical meditation journal. It's a little meditation journal for kids uh, to inspire like a daily meditation practice. And I've been working on another one called Mindfulness with Max, which is another kid's book. Um, the first kid's book is out, by the way? It is. It's called At School I Love to Meditate. Amazing. So you said you have a website for all of these? Yeah, I'm uh, at, at com. You can find those books there it's actually also on amazon that's probably an easier place to go find at school i love to meditate at school i love to meditate yes okay and then the new one that you're writing right now is going to be called a year for the heart year for the heart and the third one mindfulness with max and uh, when will those two be up a year for the heart is probably going to be within the next six months the children's meditation journal probably within the next three months two months and then mindfulness with max is kind of on the back burner and then i have another one that i've started i've done the introduction and i'm in the first chapter it's called um an adventurer's guide to mindfulness and it's kind of um treating every day like a mindfulness adventure in a way and sort of this is more about the journey yeah and it sort of ties together a lot of what i've learned in like more adventurous activities like climbing and highlighting and things like that and really kind of pointing to the fact that you don't necessarily need those to have a great adventure you can kind of have a great adventure like just being alive like you me here right now like being in this human body like like that's a massive adventure like anything on top of that is just like a cherry on top so i got a lot of those on the back burner um really trying to focus hard on growing as a financial advisor right now and writing when I can and just really molding together, infusing together those two worlds of kind of mindfulness and finance and it's been good. That is a very uh, noble path, sir. And I'm very happy that somebody's taking it. Thanks. Yeah, because uh, I think it's missing that the, before even the noble, the, ethic, the ethical, but then the noble on top of that, that's, uh, it's, it's really something that is missing. And I think this is, I really believe that this is like a new world in which these things will start popping up everywhere like mushrooms or at least I really hope so definitely yeah uh, so that and also uh, your Instagram page max period matless so the period's just a little dot like at the end of the sentence m-a-x period m-a-t-l-e-s and uh, you do uh, you also present your art right mostly on I do I you, do on the Instagram or do you also have a website for that I do have a website for it. If you go to maxmatless.com, I've got some more stuff there, just like pictures from climbing and highlighting and some art. And um, I still have some art for sale up on that website. I haven't been super gung-ho on selling art uh, recently, but 
Yeah, times change. So listen, Max, uh, it really was an absolute pleasure to have you on. And um, I am very excited about talking to you more. Obviously, we're going to keep in touch and the whole time that we're we're going to be away for a year traveling the world. But uh, I would, I, I'm actually, I can't wait for the conversation where I come back and we're going to have another podcast and we actually talk, we're going to have a lot to talk about. And I know I'm going to probably do a couple of retreats on the way, so I'll probably, you know, let you know how that went. That would be a lot of fun. And hey, who knows? Maybe you'll even uh, we'll, we'll even meet in one of them, and we might even meet in a monastery one day for a year somewhere. <laughs> I like people's stories. I like seeing people's um, expression in the world, especially when it strives towards things that I deem as uh, great in the sense that they seek to contribute to other people's lives. Mm. And you embody all of those things in a very beautiful way because the decisions that you make in your life very clearly are aiming towards the great the, towards the greater good of others in a very profound and, and ethical way and yeah I, I mean you just for me I, I'm not exaggerating what I'm saying that that your presence in the world it, it really seeds a very deep feeling of of gratitude and happiness that people like you exist like i i really like i am it it just makes me happy to know that people like you exist and that's all i can say man so thank you so much for this conversation uh you flatter me deeply appreciate it and uh yeah i can't wait for our next conversation man about you i'm just excited to have such a great friend and i'm looking forward to so many beautiful conversations in the future many many more a lot of love brother Love you too.